0: Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 23 as we continue to worship our God by giving Him our attention today. I, I pray that that's something that's, that's clear in your mind as you approach our time in the Word, that, um, that we are worshiping God by putting our eyes on Him, by putting our ears on His Scripture. When we open ourselves up to receive what He has to give to us, that is a worshipful gift that, that God considers beautiful. And so let's worship him not just in our songs and the beautiful sounds that we make when we sing in harmonies together. Let us not just worship him uh, with our offerings, but let us come and bring our own intellect, our own belief as offering to him and allow him the freedom to teach us and to shape us and to mold us as he would have us be so that we can glorify him by living out his design for us in obedience to the scripture very grateful to be able to, to study through the book of Luke with, with you, my brothers and sisters. And I, I want to give you just a little instruction. As we near the difficult events of the cross, we're going to be reading some things that are hard to read. And even so far, we've been reading some difficult things. As We've seen how they've treated Jesus, and we've seen the kind of shame that he bore for us and the sort of suffering that he went through. Sometimes as human beings, we don't like to feel uncomfortable we don't like to feel overwhelmed with sadness or grief. And so we have this tendency to sort of steal our hearts to what we're reading and hearing. And we, we almost guard ourselves so that we won't be overcome with sadness and with grief. But I want to encourage you to understand the cross for what it is. It's, it was an act of suffering that Jesus went through. And it is okay to, to cry about that. Is it, it is okay to hurt for Christ and to... To feel shame for our sin and to have real authentic remorse for what Christ had to do in order to save us. So go into these gospel um, sermons as we're, we're learning and focusing on some very difficult things and don't do it too cautiously that it becomes some academic experience where you're just learning facts about history. But realize that this is the very son of the one who made you and who loves you, who's been willing to put himself through this terrible experience and he did it in love for you. So let it get you not just here, but let it get you here and in your soul that the Lord might, might affect you with the truths of the wonderful sacrifice that he made to make us his. So we're in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to see what the Lord wants to teach us today as we work through this gospel verse by verse. We're going to start with verse 13, and we're going to read through to 25 this morning. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. To briefly recap, over the course of one terrible night, Jesus has faced already three trials from his own Jewish countrymen. Each one of those three trials was a mockery of justice because the powers that brought him to trial and accused him of serious sin had no intention of weighing the evidence to see whether he was guilty or innocent. They began those trials with a clear picture of his guilt in their minds and they would receive no other verdict. Because they had already condemned Jesus before they heard his case, these trials were simply a formality and an attempt to cover up their own deceitful actions. After completing that third Jewish trial, the Jewish officials dragged him before three secular courts. Last week we took a look at the first two of those three secular trials, and today we're going to pick up with the third. Now presiding over this third secular trial is the man who presided presided over the first secular trial. His name is Pontius Pilate. Pilate has a job to do, but he is very reluctant to do it. As the governor of Judea, and by proxy also Jerusalem, he is supposed to make sure that the laws of Rome are kept. And we saw last week that Pilate's initial evaluation of this man, Jesus, whom they accused of great sins, was a troubling evaluation. Jesus did not seem like he was guilty of any of the things that they were charging against him. Jesus seems like he's less of a threat to Rome and more of a victim of the priest's personal vendettas. And so he doesn't want to condemn Jesus, but he also doesn't want to risk an uprising by his, this angry mob that is assembled there in the early morning hours by declaring Jesus innocent and letting him go when they're all crying for his blood when we consider the information that we have that is available to us in the scriptures, especially the the four gospels, we see that Pontius Pilate, on three different occasions, tries to avoid making the final judgment about whether Jesus is guilty or innocent. The first time he did that isn't actually recorded in the book of Luke, so I want us to turn our attention for a moment to John 18. This scripture will be on the screen if you need to look after it there, otherwise you can turn to John 18. John includes a little bit more detail concerning the trials of Jesus that Luke does not have. And so in John 18, verses 29 through 32, the scripture tells us that Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the chief priests, when Pontius said, take him and judge him yourselves. Essentially what he's saying is, you know that the Jews have freedom in Rome to apply their own Jewish laws to the folks that are considering themselves Jewish. So go and judge them yourself. Judge them by your standards in your own courts. Why are you bothering me with this problem? But the chief priests were well aware that they had no freedom to put a man to death. They could put a man in prison. They could fine him. They could punish him in in simple ways. But only Rome could execute a person for crimes that were deserving of it. So they insisted that these crimes that Jesus had committed were serious enough that Pilate should give him the death penalty that they could not give to him. The second time that Pontius tries to defer this decision, he did so by sending him to Herod. Since Jesus was a Galilean, Pilate tried to let Herod judge him. Herod was the sub-ruler over the Galilean region, which was north of Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus' ministry had begun. That's where they considered Jesus to be from. And so Pilate said, well, since you're a Galilean, why don't I send you to Herod and let Herod take care of this matter? Last week we discussed how Pilate deferred and how Herod was excited to see this Jesus. We talked about how Herod was a bit paranoid. Herod had had Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, put to death by beheading. And for some reason, Herod believed when he started to hear about this Jesus who is performing miracles and casting out demons and healing the sick, that perhaps this man was powerful in ways that he couldn't explain because he was the spirit of John the Baptist, rise from the dead. So he was worried that Jesus was perhaps going to come and try to get retribution for the death that Herod had caused. So when Jesus stands before him facing severe charges, And he asks him whether he's guilty or not, and Jesus simply stands silently. He doesn't appear to be a man of power. He displays no miraculous ability. There doesn't seem anything supernatural. As as far as Herod can see, he's pleased to be relieved that this is not some some supernatural being that is going to threaten him. He doesn't find any guilt in Jesus either. So after his soldiers have mocked him a little bit and roughed him up, put a, a robe of royalty around his shoulders as a sarcastic gesture that here is the king of the Jews, they sent him back to Pilate so that Pilate might have the final sentencing over this man's life. Pontius Pilate hoped to defer by making Herod decide for him, but this problem just keeps coming back to him. As much as he would like the responsibility to go away, the governor cannot escape the truth. Jesus stands before him, an innocent man, But Pilate is compelled by the practical dilemma that if he frees Jesus, he may have an insurrection on his hands. Now as this crowd is growing more and more restless and their emotions are beginning to boil, Pilate realizes that his grip on the proceedings is slipping out of his fingers. His moral convictions begin to give way to his practical agenda. Now to understand what makes him subvert justice in this moment, it's worth our time now this morning to look back historically at some of the things that had happened in Pontius Pilate's reign as governor. We know he served from AD 26 to AD 36. We're roughly looking at about five years into his term as the governor of Judea. And much has happened before Jesus comes before his courts. When he took his office in 26 AD he decided to be installed with much fanfare and with a great display of military power. He wanted these Jewish people who were notoriously resistant to the Roman rulers that were over them, he wanted them to see that he was not somebody to be messed with. And so he marched into Jerusalem with a great assembly of armed troops. And those troops were holding on their standards a great big banners. And those banners had an interesting image depicted on them. The image was the shoulders of a golden eagle upon which the bust of Caesar's head was depicted. Now, that might sound a little strange to you, but at the time of Jesus, it was very, very common in Rome to worship the Caesar of Rome as a semi- or demi-god. He was, he was considered more than a man. He was considered supernaturally powerful. And so, artists would sometimes render him in these sort of mythical, uh, mythical pictures of almost like a man-creature. And so this image was supposed to evoke power and swiftness and these banners that were marched into town were then hung from the walls of the palace where Pilate was going to be when he was in town to adjudicate um, justice over the people of the Israelites. Now this image probably was all over the empire and most different cultures did not object to it, but we know that the the Jewish people were monotheistic. They believed that there was only one God and that God was Yahweh. So for Pilate to march in as a new ruler and then plaster this picture of a demigod Caesar all over the walls of the palace just a a few hundred yards from the temple was blasphemy to them. So they began to complain. They petitioned Caesar to take them down. They threatened to go to Pilate's superiors if he did not remove those banners. Because Pilate was stubborn, Because he didn't want to appear soft and weak to these people in the first days of his reign, he refused to take those banners down. But he was also greatly annoyed by their pleading. So he said, meet me in the amphitheater and we will discuss the matter. The Jewish people believed they were being given an audience, that they could speak their mind and perhaps have justice. So they assembled in the amphitheater and Pilate promptly marched his soldiers around it. Those soldiers drew their weapons And Pilate said, if you continue to harass me about these banners, which are a symbol of the greatness of our empire, then my soldiers will put you to death. Do you know what the Jews did at that moment? They pulled their robes down and said, then cut our heads off, because we would rather live the truth of God than be subject to your blasphemy. He was not expecting that. What the Jewish people knew, this was not the first governor they had to deal with. They knew that it would look really bad for a Roman governor who had just been installed to begin his reign with a giant riot and insurrection in one of his most important provinces. And so they called his bluff. And Pontius Pilate realized he could not put them to death. He backed off. He took down the, the banners. And from that minute forward, moment forward, the Jews and Pontius Pilate were at odds with each other. Sometime later, a few months after he had been installed, Pilate was assessing the state of Jerusalem, and he decided that it needed some upgrades. There were some technological advances that were starting to spread through the empire of Rome. They had developed much better aqueducts and plumbing systems. And he wanted to upgrade Jerusalem to get it up to speed with some of the other wonderful cities that were ruled by Rome. And he had a plan on how to finance that. He was going to go to the temple and take some of the temple treasures to finance this upgrade in the system, the plumbing system of Jerusalem. And you can imagine how the Jews responded to that. Those offerings that they had given in the temple were for one purpose, and that purpose was to worship and glorify Yahweh their God. And so by dipping into those funds, they believed that Pilate was stealing from their God. They were up in arms about this. There was a riot in Jerusalem. This time it didn't end so peacefully. Pilate tried to put it down swiftly with his guards, and by club and sword, several dozens of Jews were put to death that day. One strike at the beginning of his ministry, two strikes a few months into his rule as governor over Judea, and then a third incident in Jerusalem had placed Pilate in hot water once again. That same palace that had originally been the place where Pilate hung his banners with the blasphemy, uh, the image of this demigod Caesar, remained under Pilate's use and control. Several years had gone by, about three years after he had taken office, and he decided he wanted to redecorate. He went out and he hung from the walls of the palace great shields with the face of Caesar. Now, it wasn't the golden eagle with Caesar's face. It was just the face of Caesar, But the the Jewish people of Jerusalem instantly recognized what Pilate was trying to do. He was trying to, several years later, win that argument that had begun when he took office. And so he placed these great big standards outside of the palace. And again, it was an insult to the Jews. So rather than complaining to him, they sent a Jewish delegation who marched all the way to the capital of Rome. And they spoke to Caesar... And Caesar was not interested in another insurrection in Jerusalem. And so he sent back Roman delegates who insisted that Pilate take down those shields and send them to Caesarea where they would be received happily. And he he basically warned Pilate, if this happens again, you're in trouble. So Pilate has one, two, three strikes against him. There is plenty of evidence that he was on thin ice as governor of Judea. He knew the Jews hated him, He didn't want to bend to their will, but he also had very little room for error considering the many mistakes he had already made. So the pressure is heavy on the shoulders of this secular ruler. He is compelled to find a way out of condemning Jesus. So he tries a third time to get out of having to decide whether Jesus is innocent or guilty. Look at your Bibles for a minute. In Luke chapter 23, look at verse 17. Go ahead, look at verse 17. Some of you might be having a hard time because many of your scriptures probably go from verse 16 to verse 18. That is not a mistake. That's not a typo. Um, That is because we have a few older manuscripts, manuscripts that, that are actually not as old as some of our ancient manuscripts, that include verse 17, which basically explains a certain custom that was commonly known of in ancient Rome. But because they are not in the earliest manuscripts, most scholars have drawn the conclusion that these were a later edition. Luke's hand did not write verse 17. It was added to clarify for people who didn't understand what this custom was. Pilate was getting prepared to evoke a very interesting Passover custom in an attempt to grant Jesus a pardon. He didn't want to say he was innocent or guilty, So he decided he would pardon Jesus according to this custom. Now the custom allowed the Roman governor of Judea to acquit one Jewish prisoner a year based on public outcry during the week of Passover. Now remember Passover is like the crowning week of the Jewish culture. During this week-long celebration, this holiday of sorts, the Jews would be gathered from all over the empire to worship Yahweh and to bring sacrifices to Him. And so the empire thought we need to do something to make up for all this tension and hardship that has existed between us and these Jews. We don't want them rioting every 10 days, so let's do something nice as a, as a public relations gesture to them. So they came up with this custom that each Passover the people could cry out for one prisoner who was sentenced to death or life in prison... And the Roman government would then allow them to pardon that individual. It's basically a free will gesture or goodwill gesture saying that we're not totally against you. We want to listen to you. We want to give you grace and mercy. And Pontius Pilate uh, is getting ready to evoke this custom. Now Luke, when he wrote his gospel, apparently he felt like the people who were reading it knew enough about that custom he didn't have to explain it. But a little bit down the road as, as they... They no longer used that custom. Somebody had edited in verse 17 and wrote in the scripture a little explanation of what that was about. And so that's why some of your scriptures might have 17 or a little note on the bottom that describes it. Originally, Luke just records how Pilate tried to use the policy. Pilate declares to the people, I will punish and release Jesus to you. This in itself is a compromise of truth, isn't it? If Jesus believes the man to be innocent, why is he going to beat him and then release him? He should just release him. But again, he's walking this thin line of trying to do what is right and try to do what the people want. In his mind, he's trying to avoid a more serious error of put Jesus to death. So he's willing to beat him if that's going to eventually lead to his freedom. However, the chief priests and the scribes and the portion of the people that were there gathered who had been convinced by those Jewish leaders that he was guilty, all cried out together, away with this man, meaning away with Jesus, and released to us Barabbas. They didn't want Jesus beaten, they wanted him executed. And they weren't about to back down until the governor gave them what they had come for. Oh, the dangerous power of the united voice. There are times when quantity can overwhelm quality, aren't there? As much as we are prone as American citizens to respect and support the democratic system of rule by the majority, democracy is not without its faults. There are times when the majority of the people have it wrong. And this is one such example. Though the people were ratcheting up the pressure and demanding Pilate give them Barabbas, that was clearly not the right decision to make. However, on that fateful Friday morning, what was right lost out to what was expedient. In the interest of preserving his place as governor and to avoid another uprising during the holy week of Passover, Pilate capitulated, and he allowed himself to be ruled by the people rather than standing up and doing what he was supposed to do, which was to rule the people with justice. Barabbas is set free, and the fate of Jesus is sealed. So who is this Barabbas? Who is this man who walks free while Christ is condemned? Matthew chapter 26, verse 16, describes him as a notorious prisoner. That means that he was more than just a faceless person who was spending time in a jail cell. This was a man who was well known. His name was on the people's ears and on their lips. They had spoken of the wicked things he had done. He was a bit of a celebrity as far as crime was concerned. Mark 15:7 indicates that Barabbas had committed murder and had been arrested as a rebel against Rome trying to incite more and more rebellion. Sometime earlier, an uprising had occurred within the city walls of Jerusalem and had turned very bloody. And there's no doubt that Barabbas was one of the ones who was shedding blood and taking life. But he was captured and taken as a prisoner by the Roman guards and had set trial um, which had condemned him to the penalty of death. John 18.40 indicates that Barabbas was also a robber. And that might seem like a small detail considering we already see him as a murderer But it it helps us to understand that this man's insurrection was probably not a noble rebellion. You know, some of the rebels that had been imprisoned were seen as heroes by the Jews because they were trying to fight for the freedom that they all wanted. But this man Barabbas was not a freedom fighter. He simply saw that fighting against Rome might create anarchy and give him a chance to steal from others and to take advantage of that chaos. So this is not a noble man that the Jews admire. This is a wretched criminal. A man who was known for his heinous acts. And so there is great irony to the crimes that that Brabus has committed. When you think about what's on his his rap sheet, you might notice that he was in jail and sentenced to death for the very things that the chief priests were accusing Jesus of doing that Jesus was innocent of. They had called him a rebel. A man who stirred up the people and stole from the Caesar by not allowing the Jewish people to give their taxes. These are all lies about Jesus, but these are all things that Barabbas is actually guilty of. The accusers of slanderously tried to deceive Pilate into thinking that Jesus is just the next version of Barabbas. And so according to these traditions that we've uh, been told about that are mentioned in that Phantom verse 17, Pilate would be allowed to decide to free one prisoner during this Passover. And he he gives the choice to the people. Would you free Barabbas, this terrible, heinous criminal, this man who has no regard for your society, who is a cancer on Jerusalem? Would you free him or would you free Jesus? Why don't you agree to let me beat Jesus and set him free? He's not really a threat to you. But shockingly, the people were unanimous in their decision. Pardon Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Though Barabbas is only briefly discussed here in Luke 23, I want us to think for a moment about how this played out from his perspective. Here is a man who, because of his own actions, because of the wickedness of his own selfish heart, He was sitting in a cold jail cell, condemned to inevitable execution. He's clearly a rebel. He's tried to oppose the most powerful regime in the world, and he has failed. They've condemned him as a murderer. They found him guilty of robbery. He's been declared a threat to the empire. And there is nothing that he can do to save himself now. He is a hopeless man, a dead man walking. And yet Barabbas, as he sits there in his dark, cold cell, hears footsteps. The footsteps of Roman soldiers approaching his cell. And he probably thinks to himself, this is it. This is the end. There is a cross waiting for him on Calvary, and he knows it. In just a short while, he'll be hanging in agony. As an example to those of Rome about what happens when you oppose the Caesar. It's even possible that through the walls of his cell, Barabbas had heard the muffled shouts of an angry crowd not far away shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! And had assumed that an assembly was gathering to see him executed. But then something surprising happens. The guards grab him and yank him to his feet, but they don't drag him off to his scourging. They do not thrust a crossbeam on his shoulders to carry up Calvary's mount. They unlock his shackles and they lead him towards those crowds outside and they pronounce him a free man. How? How is Barabbas free when just moments before he was destined to death? What has caused this governor to change his mind? As his eyes begin to adjust to the light, And Barabbas sees a man standing before this angry crowd, the angry crowd that has just called for his release. Perhaps that man that he sees is someone that he recognizes, someone that he has seen before teaching in the marketplace. He notices that the man wears a robe. It's almost like the robe that a king would wear, but they're not treating him like a king. They're screaming at him. They are shouting for his death. They are mocking him. Crucify him! Crucify him! And he stands there receiving their shouts and their anger, absorbing their scorn. That man will receive the beating that Barabbas deserves. That man will carry the cross that Barabbas has earned by his wickedness. That man will hang on Calvary in his place. Who is Barabbas? there is a sense in which Barabbas is each one of us who has given our lives to Christ and experienced the freedom that can only be purchased by his blood. Here, even before Jesus is nailed to a cross, God gives us a vivid picture of the atonement. Atonement was a word picture that God had given To the Israelite people under the law of Moses, it is described to us in Leviticus chapter 16. I want to read just a few verses about it so you get a feel for what it meant. It was the basis of the holiday Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which pointed forward to the fact that God had a plan to redeem His people and to wash them clean of their sin. Leviticus 16 verses 5 through 10. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats, pay special attention to them, and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now, Azazel might be a a Hebrew word for scapegoat, and it may be a word for the accuser. So one goat goes to the accuser, and one goat goes to the the Lord. We're not entirely sure about that. Verse 9: And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel." Now this is a very interesting concept. As kind of a ritual that they would do once a year, they would bring two goats before the high priest, and after he had consecrated himself by sacrificing a bull and made himself holy to partake in this ritual, they would then cast lots over these two goats. Now these two goats had to be spotless. They couldn't be beat-up goats or old goats or sick goats or blemished goats. They had to be pure. They had to be valuable and good. And those goats would then be put before the high priest. And then he would use an ephod, probably, to cast lots over these these two animals. And by casting lots, basically what that means is they were going to let the Lord decide which one of those goats was to go free and which one of those goats would be sacrificed, would be put to death in place of man for the sins that man had created. And so that high priest would cast lots and by random selection the goat that had been designated as an offering, would be slain. His life would be taken, his blood would be shed. And the other goat, who stood just next to the goat who was put to death, would then be set free into the wilderness to symbolize the freedom of one who is forgiven and released from their sin. You know what's interesting about the name Barabbas? It's a compound name made of two words. What does Abba mean? Abba means father. Do you know what the prefix bar means? It means son of. Barabbas' name actually means son of the father. Before us here, before Pontius Pilate, it seems that we have, in a a sense, these two goats of Yom Kippur, these these two offerings both called Son of the Father. One is Son of God, one is Son of the Father. And it is only by the will of God that the one that is actually wicked and wretched and deserving of death is allowed to go free. But because of the loving, graceful will of God, the one that is pure and holy is going to be offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice for the one that is guilty. I want to read for you briefly out of Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus, the one who deserves to be exalted and lifted high, the one who is absolutely free of sin, is about to let his blood be shed so that sinners like Barabbas, sinners like you, and sinners like me, might through faith receive atonement for our sins. You might ask yourself, I'm not like Barabbas. How am I like Barabbas? I've never murdered anyone, I'm not a thief, I've never started a rebellion. Well, there is a greater authority than Caesar's authority, one that is greater than any king or president, and that authority is God, the Creator. And when you and I break the rules and laws of that God, that Creator who gave us life, when we offend Him, we are not just breaking a man's rules, we are breaking God's law. That makes us rebels to the God of all creation the one who rules over all with sovereignty and power. In going our own way, we have tried to be the kings of our own little kingdoms, and we've all committed treason against the God who has made us. That is why sin is so serious, because it's not just me offending you, it's all of us offending the one God who deserves our honor and respect and gratitude. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. You see how that describes our condition? You might not be a rebel, you might not have committed murder, but the lust of your flesh has caused you to offend and sin against the perfect and pure God that you should love. We, like Barabbas, are all guilty of rebellion. And while each of our rap sheets might read differently than his, we have all done what we know to be wrong at some point in our lives. Probably daily we sin against our God, and that sin offends him. God is more than some cosmic benefactor who wants to help us accomplish our dreams and our goals if we'll only pray to him. As we sang earlier, counting every blessing, don't mistake that to mean that God is just some Holy Grandpa that wants to come into your life and give you the good things you can't get for yourself. He's more than that. He is the king of all that he has made. And he wants you to come and be a part of his family. But in order for that to happen, he must be father to you. He must have authority over your lives. He is holy and perfect and almighty. And we were made by God for the purposes of glorifying him and exalting his name. But by committing sin, we have made ourselves His enemies that rebellion is why the cross was necessary in the first place Pilate had not wanted to condemn Jesus but he couldn't find a way to save him God does not want to condemn us mankind but unlike Pilate God made a way for man to be redeemed without compromising justice we owe a debt that we would have to pay with our own lives in hell for eternity but because God did not want us to have to pay that Christ came and took on flesh and lived perfectly and sacrificed himself so that that justice could be done in him. And our sins might be atoned for, that we might be forgiven and washed clean by his perfect blood. Titus 3 goes on to say in verses 4 through 7, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Barabbas did nothing to free himself. He had no power to fight against the power of Rome. And yet he walked into that air breathing like a free man because of what God did for him. Brothers and sisters, that is what we experience if we come to the cross of Jesus Christ and repent. When Jesus, perfect and unworthy of sacrifice, not, not deserving, I mean, of death, when he allowed himself to be pierced through and and hung on a cross in shame. He took the guilt of the world upon his shoulders. That sacrifice and the fact that he rose again, victorious over death on the third day, was powerful enough to save everyone. But it doesn't effectively save you unless you come to the cross of Christ and repent of your sin and receive him as your savior. Friends, Jesus Christ died on the cross to save those whom He would save. But in order for you to be saved, there has got to be a change in you. And that change doesn't even start with your own attitude or your own understanding. It starts with the Holy Spirit reaching down into your life and changing you in such a way that you might see your sin differently than you saw it yesterday. The Lord God makes it clear to you that you are a sinner. And that you need to repent. And then he gives you the tools to stand up and say, Lord God, take my broken life. Give me a new life. I trust you as my king. I don't want to rebel against you anymore. Please be my savior. I give you my everything. The one who Pilate declared was guilty of no sin is the one who will be treated like a sinner in the place of sinner for the sake of sinners. But we must come before him in faith and receive that willingly. We must understand that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess that with our mouth and with our actions. The debt that was owed by the wretched is paid in full by the man of sorrows who had never yielded to temptation. And so Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 can say, by the voice of Paul the Apostle, and you who were dead in your trans- in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so with the sacrifice of Jesus, God clearly made a way for us to be redeemed. His death can save you. But in order for that salvation to be effective in your life, you've got to come before Him with a repentant heart and believe that God is the one who raised Him him from the dead. Confess your sin before Him and tell Him that you need Him. Receive Him with a grateful heart. Friends, we we are going to benefit from this beautiful grace for the rest of our eternity and today we're going to celebrate that victory that Jesus won by looking at these two elements this Lord's table this Lord's supper that he's provided for us to remind us of his amazing grace we are a blessed people who know the Lord Jesus Christ but as we enter into this season that leads up to resurrection day that leads up to Easter I want to encourage you and challenge you that it would be a cruel thing if we were to just sit here in this building and say thank you Lord for saving us knowing that all around us are people who, like Barabbas, are still in the cell and do not know what it means to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, if we were to sit in this room and praise Jesus and then go out into the world and stay silent about the hope that they could have, what an offense that would be to the God who went to such great lengths to save us. Let us pray that God would give us an evangelistic heart, especially during this Easter season that we would see not only the powerful impact it has made on us, but that we would desire that for everyone we meet and see, that we would desire it even for our enemies, that God would enter into their existence, that they would see for the first time the weight of their sin, and that they would give themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you cannot communicate that to your friend or to your neighbor or to your family member, then please bring them here. You might have noticed for the past several weeks, we've been really spending a lot of time on these essentials of the gospel. This blood atonement is necessary for us to understand. If we're gonna understand the the power of salvation, we've gotta know that Christ is the one who paid the penalty and washed us free from this sin. So bring your friends, invite your neighbors, tell them to come. Tell them to hear the grace that has not only saved you, but, but have them hear the grace that can save them as well. So that they can count themselves as blessed. That they were once slaves, but now they are free. We're going to transition now into a time of of celebration. As we think about the great gift of, of salvation that many of us have. And we're going to take some time to prepare our hearts for this Lord's Supper. Now this sacrament, which is like a holy activity that God has given to us, set apart to teach us something and to affect our hearts, It's something that's been given for every committed believer to experience. So you don't have to be a a member of this local church to take of these elements today. If if you have given your life to Christ, then this is for you. Please come and take of of these elements because they are a blessing to us. It's a celebration of the victory that Jesus Christ has won over our sin. That he was the only one who was powerful enough to wash us clean of the debt that we had owed. But it is also a humbling experience because as we come before these elements, we are reminded that Jesus didn't just write a check and give it to the bank to pay for our debt. He paid it with His very blood. He bled and died for us. And so these two elements are symbolic of His life, of His death, of His burial, of His resurrection. The bread that we're going to eat in just a few moments is unleavened bread. And it is done specifically that way because in the Jewish culture, leaven represented sin. Because yeast, just a little bit of yeast, can affect a whole lump of dough. And so the, the Israelites recognized that, that sin is like that. When you let a little bit of sin, it infects it the whole person. A little bit of sin in a community can affect the whole community. And so when we eat this bread, we're eating of unleavened bread because it is representative of the body of Jesus which he willingly took on in order to come and live and dwell with us. But his body is unique. It's different than ours in one way. It is free from sin. Not one of us in this room can say that we are pure and holy like God is holy, but Christ walked the same kind of life that we live, and every temptation, he said no. Every time the enemy tried to make him stumble, he stayed upright. And so this bread is representative of the body of Christ, the life that he lived here on earth for our sake. John 6:51 says, "I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world." Now don't be mistaken into thinking that the bread that we're going to eat today has some mystical property that saves you. And if you just bottle it up and give it to your neighbor, they'll become saved. No. The bread is representative of the real thing that saves you. It's representative of the life of Jesus, which if you partake of it, if you dwell with Christ and receive his gift, his life offered for you, then you will be saved. In the Old Testament, the blood of spotless animals was shed to symbolically pay for the sins of Israel. Now, a lamb or a goat or a bull is not the equivalent of a human being, is it? We are made in the image of God. Animals were not. So although animals are valuable to the Lord, they are are not efficient for our salvation. They cannot atone for us. But those Old Testament animals, those sacrifices that were made, pointed forward to a greater sacrifice. And that greater sacrifice was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. By giving His blood, by bleeding His life out for us, He gave His self for our sins. Matthew 26, 28 says, For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. By dying on the cross for us, he gave us the opportunity to have eternal life with him. We celebrate today because Jesus did not just die, he rose. On the third day after he was laid to death in that tomb, he showed us that the grave has no power over him and death has no sting by rising up again. But that resurrection could not happen until he had given his body and his blood as an offering for us. Now what we're going to do right now is we're going to take some time to silently pray to our God and to talk to Him. And we do this because we want communion to be a time of reflection. We want communion to be a time when we consider the weight of what Christ has done for us. And so I'm not going to lead you in this prayer. You're going to pray quietly on your own and just talk to God. And I would encourage you to ask Him to reveal whatever is is sinful in your life that you need to repent of. And, And ask him if there's anything you're missing that you want to put in his hands. Thank him for the willingness that he showed to to die for us and for our sake. And thank the Lord God that he was willing to send Jesus who had power even over our death. Let's spend some time praying about those and after a little while, I'll close that prayer out and then I'm going to describe the process by which we're going to be taking communion today. We're going to be taking communion actively and then we will sing together and take of, of the elements. But let's all bow our heads in a time of of silent prayer.